was decided in October 2013. SARS must be taken and people neutralized. Chilling words and a ruthless decision, and also the first steps in state capture, a well-coordinated campaign that cost our country billions of rands. I'm Ilse Salzvedel and Johan van Lochrenberg is my guest in this outer podcast on whistleblowers. Johan shares his own story and also gives valuable insight into how whistleblowers and victims of state capture were affected. It's my pleasure to be speaking to Johan van Lochrenberg today. Many of you will know Johan's name because he's been prominently in the news for years now. Johan, you were involved with SARS, the so-called, and I repeat, so-called rogue unit. Tell us about your life, how you blew the whistle, and the results of that. That is basically the theme of today's podcast. But first, tell us about yourself. Thank you, Ilze, for the opportunity. I, I guess in a general sense, my um, background prior to joining the Revenue Service um, in my 20s, I was a police official and I worked for the detective service in a, a small unit called the Organized Crime Intelligence Unit. And I was an undercover police agent, not a spy, contrary to some people's popular belief. And we caught um, organized criminals and we shut down um, uh, crime syndicates. At the age of uh, 29, I joined the South African Revenue Service at a fairly low rank. And um, over the years, I worked myself up into um, ultimately becoming the group executive of a, a subdivision known as Projects, Evidence Management and Technical Support. And I managed five units, of which one unit, which was the tiniest of all, consisting of six people, was known as the High Risk Investigations Unit. And that's the unit that got all these epitaphs and, and became the target of the propaganda campaign. So that's more or less in a nutshell. I've been privileged enough to be afforded the opportunity by Jonathan Bull Publishers to write some books on my time period at the Revenue Service. And um, they tell the whole story. They, they explain from literally the day that I started at the Revenue Service until the day I left. And it reminisces on some of the publicly known matters that I was involved in with um, a host of other people at the Revenue Service. In a nutshell, what exactly were you guys, that small unit of six people, what were you investigating? What made you a target? That is actually the essence of my question. Well, I mean, I've gone on oath uh, in many um, court proceedings and even before the State Capture Commission over the years on that question. To some extent, I'm not lawfully entitled to go into too much detail, but to the extent that some of these things are public knowledge, um, I, I should firstly say the five units that I oversaw um, over the years between 2010 to 2015 at the Revenue Service work in an integrated fashion. So it's not as if just the one unit did something that the other units didn't do. We worked on the basis of what was known as the compliance program, which was a revenue service-wide uh, focus area on high-risk sectors in the economy, including the illicit economy. And then we also uh, took our uh, direction from 
what was known as the illicit economy strategy of the South African Revenue Service, which, by the way, was approved by cabinet and parliament in those years um, and year on year. So we didn't choose who we wanted to um, investigate or audit. This was done uh, in, a, in a scientific manner and matters were allocated to us. And all five units worked together, as I say, in a horizontal fashion, but with certain areas of expertise or specialities or uh, methodologies. And uh, our primary focus was then to execute the, the, the tax customs and excise statutory mandates of the revenue service, which included law enforcement. And so in the course and scope of what we did, we investigated organized crime, specifically in the illicit economy. In a plain way of explaining this, you dealt with smuggling operations, things that didn't go through the books um, where the country lost taxes. Is that a good way to summarize it? But smuggling is just one type of revenue service uh, um, related type of crime. It ranged from people who were involved in committing criminal activities for financial gain and obviously didn't declare that income and that income had to be taxed and those activities had to be curbed. So it could have been cash in transit, heist gangs, gangsters involved in drug dealing to uh, motor car theft and smuggling to um, more sophisticated financial schemes, pyramid schemes, Ponzi schemes, tobacco smuggling and illicit manufacturing, gun running, ammunition, you name it. Anything to do with um, illicit activity uh, where there was a commercial benefit to the criminals, which they obviously didn't declare for tax purposes. And then within there were different categories of criminality. Um, but we approached it from a revenue service perspective. And that was really in compliance with government's seven objectives, uh, of which one included ensuring that the country and people in this country felt safe and secure. And that's a constitutional imperative for every government department in the country. So where did everything go wrong? When did you become a victim um, purely by trying to do your job? Well, I should first say I don't consider myself a victim. I consider myself a survivor. Um, and there's a, there's a marked difference yes, between the two. True. And I'm thankful for that. But where did things go wrong? I think, you know, it had its origins in the early 2000s, but it became certainly more pointed and marked from around 2010 onwards. In the course and scope of uh, what these five units that I managed were investigating and the extent to which we, I believe we were successful in impacting on organized crime, we so happened to um, cross paths with a range of individuals who had their feet not only in politics or in government or in big business, but also in the illicit economy and criminal activities. And so if one can imagine almost, you know, um, like a Venn diagram, you would have had people who were politically connected or were politicians themselves, 
who overlapped with organized criminals and gangs, who overlapped with certain sectors of the illicit economy and the illicit economy that were high risk, where there was a lot of money, which also overlapped with certain um, narrow political interests and international organized crime, so so, so cross-border organized crime. And where all of these interests began to converge, because we were um, effective in what we were doing, we made so many enemies. I'll give you some examples. You know, we would be threatened with what, what we used to call names dropping. So we would be in the process of freezing assets of somebody as, as a consequence of one of our investigations. And that person would then use the name of powerful people or politicians and say, look, if we continue with this, that's going to be the end of our careers. In some instances, our people were threatened with physical harm. Their families were surveilled with photos of their children, extortion attempts. There were incidents that I can quickly recall where people were held hostage. People were shot at. Some people were killed. Uh, they were murders that have never been solved. So we had all of these sort of enemies from different spheres of society um, who all saw us as the bane of their existence, and they didn't want us in their lives. I can recall many incidents where politicians would actually call us and summons us or alternatively come and see us and tell us to go easy on someone and only for them to leave with us having to explain to them, this is not how the revenue service worked. We apply the law. We don't care who you are. We don't care who you know. So the old attempts to bribe the people and so on didn't work. And so it was inevitable for me, at least in hindsight, that the, the pressures imposed on us would escalate. And that's ultimately what began to happen in 2014. It was just a matter of a certain small grouping who happened to overlap with our intelligence services and the tobacco industry in the main, and some political connections, who just for self-preservation purposes attempted to discredit us by making uh, ludicrous and false claims that were completely unsupported by any evidence. And that gained traction amongst our other enemies. And some of those enemies were far more powerful than them, including the state capture gang. One example would be, we know now that already in November 2013, the Gupta brothers were receiving intelligence from somebody within the revenue service via uh, one of their um, underlings, uh, a gentleman by the name of Gary Naidu, by email, telling them specifically which projects we were busy with, which of those projects related to, in one way or another, the then sitting president, Mr. Jacob Zuma, and who the persons were that were working on these projects by name. So that email is there. It's, you know, it's cast in stone. It was already in November 2013. We also know today that just before that, there were already a series of meetings between the multinational consulting firm Bain and & Company and Mr. Moyane and Mr. Zuma, where they were effectively deciding to alter the entire structure of the South African Revenue Service in secret. 
this was almost a year before Mr. Zuma even announced the appointment of Mr. Moyane. And they used terminology like people must be neutralized. And then true enough, a year later, people were neutralized. And the subdivision that I headed was completely neutralized. So I think in that sense, you know, it was inevitable because we were effective to some extent. We were making an impact. We were a direct threat to bad people. And all of these bad people had one thing in common. They all had guilty consciences. They were all over the barrel because of our investigations. And we were seen as the common enemy. And they, you know, once somebody um, cut, made a little cut, it was the proverbial blood in the water with the shark circling, and it just became a feeding frenzy. And everybody and their pal jumped onto the bandwagon. And it's always remained politically expedient. You know, to this day, you still have people who believe in that um, nonsense, you know. Um, <laughs> so it's, 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 it's a deep brand. and. Um, that's, if, that's in short, in a nutshell, what happened. Um, if we had different political leadership at the time, would things have gone differently for you? In other words, if we weren't in the grasp of state capture, a captured president, people within politics that were hiding stuff, do you think it would have gone differently for you and for the units you were heading up? And for SARS, ultimately? Ilza, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not great at speculating. You know, I've, I've gotten things wrong in my life before. I, I've, I've often thought um, better of people or worse of people, and then they've proven me wrong. So I, I tend to avoid speculation. What I will say in response to your question is this. Had what happened at the Revenue Service not happened, a lot of what we know today in respect of state capture we would have addressed in 2014, 15, and 16. So we would have exposed a lot of these shenanigans in the course and scope of what the Revenue Service was busy with um, at that point in time. That's the one thing I will say. The second thing I will say is that if it wasn't those few people who decided to target me and then ultimately you know, the units that worked under me, it would have been something else. We know today that the decisions had been made by Mr. Zuma and Mr. Moyane and Bain and Company and, and a few people within the Revenue Service at the time, including Mr. Jonas Makwakwa, as an example. We know this today. So we know that the decision had been made that the Revenue Service must be taken and it must be brought to uh, some level of personal control. and. The roadmap for that was already defined in um, October 2013. So I think all that happened really with me was that, you know, I was the, the proverbial sitting duck and they had to pick something. And if it wasn't me, it would have been somebody else or something else. That in itself developed a life of its own and it kept on morphing and adapting. You know, as things turned out to be false, somebody else would come and elaborate and alter it, and it would, just, it would be allegation upon allegation upon allegation. And this would be kind of plastered over with a veneer of credibility, 
by so-called panels, you know, chaired by advocates and former judges and an audit firm. But it was complete hocus pocus. I mean, none of them interviewed me uh, properly or put things to me to answer to. And even their findings were never presented to me to respond to prior to finalization. And even on, upon finalization, these things weren't provided to me. I had to read about it as they were leaked to the media or presented to the media on the day that, that it happened. So it was just, you know, these, this, it was a layered situation and it was a sophisticated fraud. That was since retracted, uh, the panel that you're referring to under the retired judge. Am I correct? Oh, I mean, it's, the list is long. A matter was settled with carte blanche and uh, DSTV and uh, MNET at the Broadcasting Complaints Commission of South Africa in 2015. The Sunday Times, which, which ran a whole series of this um, propaganda, lost at the press ombud in 2015 against me. Um, in 2016, the Sunday Times did a whole full-page uh, retraction and apology, which they repeated in 2018 on the front page. There are a host of court matters. Um, you know, every time these things come before independent arbiters where the sunlight is there and the public can see these things, they don't hold water. It's a host of them. A lot of people who were originally part of promoting or advancing or publishing the nonsense even apologized, you know, publicly so. People in the tobacco industry, some journalists. Yeah, Judge Cruen, I suppose, um, because of his stature in society and um, his title and, you know, the, the role he played, did to some extent give a sense of the fact that they actually never did any investigation at all. They just took a document that was drafted by one of the panel members who happened to be severely conflicted because he had tremendous issues with uh, Ivan Pillay and myself and a few other people. And his, his own personal emotions and issues informed his, what he was being paid to do. And they just rubber stamped it. So there, there was a recantation on oath at the Commission of Inquiry at the Revenue Service in 2018. But subsequent to that, I also concluded a settlement with uh, Judge Cruen at the Judicial Service Commission with the assistance of two senior judges who oversaw my complaint there. And Judge Cruen, albeit belated, to his credit, did apologize to the Revenue Service and all the people that were affected by that statement um, in writing, formally. It's a pity that the Revenue Service has never provided that apology to the people to whom it was directed, but I can't speak for the Revenue Service. Last year, the Revenue Service has also formally um, rejected and explained why and recanted the so-called Sikakane report in totality. It's also taken a long time, but finally they've done it and to their credit. So they've effectively said this is a report that nobody should rely on because it's factually wrong and it was also procedurally unfair. Uh, and the same goes for the KPMG report. So, you know, these things just, you know, as I say, it's it's kind of, I always joke and say it's like the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You know, the consequences of the invasion of Iraq today will be with families and people there for the rest of their lives and even for next generations.
And it was all on the basis of a very sophisticated uh, tomfoolery at the United Nations Security Council many years ago, where we all believed uh, Senator Colin Powell when they presented the so-called intelligence, you know, which was manipulated stuff, and it was purely intended to justify the invasion there. We know now that, you know, there never were any weapons of mass destruction, and it was nonsense. But um, as these things go and as propaganda works, it always finds traction in certain quarters of society who have their own nefarious agendas, and they tend to keep these things alive. So today still in Germany, you still have Nazis, you know. Just like in South Africa, you still have people who, who would love for the apartheid years to come back. There will always be those sections in society that will, will grab onto a concept and try and keep it alive for their own benefit. Forget about trying to engage with them rationally. There's no point. They, they use every logical fallacy in the world, and if that doesn't work, they just change the topic and attack you. Yeah. They won't sit with you and you know, tell us where, where's this brothel. You know, mm. um, they just won't go to that level of detail. So what you're saying is that people bought the stories, the made-up stories, the fake reports, hook, line, and sinker, and years later they retracted or uh, apologized. But in between those years, between planting the stories basically selling it as propaganda and retracting it. A lot of damage was done. Uh, people lost their lives. People lost their livelihoods. Please tell us about that. And also, I don't think people expected anybody to fought back and come back from this. How did you manage to keep your head above water and still speak out and still fight on behalf of others who didn't fight back or perhaps died? before they could do so? Ilza, I, I've been asked this question before. I, I don't have a good answer. I suppose it sits in your value system. I suppose you will always get people who will capitulate because fundamentally in our primal cortex, if we go to our natural instincts, when faced with a situation of danger and injustice, you will either run away from it and try and forget it and put it out of your life. Or you will challenge it and do your best. Or you will succumb to it and become part of it. It's pretty binary in that sense. Now, the only thing that will override that, in my view, is your personal sense of values, your value system. It's your understanding of what is right and wrong and what, as a human being on this planet, is your responsibility when you see something is wrong and you're in a position to stop it or to do something about it. And that's a personal choice. So for me, how did I keep my head above water? Well, there were times when my head didn't feel like it was, a, was above water. In fact, just recently, you know, when I had this home invasion and stuff, you know, it's a, it's a stark reminder that things aren't over. They're only starting now. People are desperate now because there's sunlight on what they've done. And they're going to probably have to account. And people like myself and others will have to go and testify in criminal courts, potentially, if need be, against them. So 
we remain a threat to them. And none of these things are things that we go and look for. I, I was just an ordinary civil servant. In fact, I'd be surprised if anybody knew of my existence or what I looked like until Sunday Times decided to put me on their front page in October 2014 after Mr. Muyane took over. I don't think people knew of my existence before that. So it's also they bring the fight to you. And then it's a question of what do you do? You, you have to make a choice. You have to make time your friend. And you have to have a faith in what is good. And that's all you have. And they don't give you alternatives. But to defend yourself and others. And when I left the revenue service um, in February 2015, I gave my word to the people with whom I had worked for 16 years that if it's the last thing I do, I will make sure that the truth sees light of day. And that's, that was my word. So it's also something that kept me going. So whenever any of the people that I litigated against indicated their willingness to meet me halfway and apologize and repair things to the extent that one could under the circumstances. I never sought vindication or apology to me as Johan. I always absolutely insisted that firstly, it should be directed to the country as a whole because the country suffered. It should then be directed to the revenue service as an institution because that institution suffered. And then it should be directed to former and current officials there because they suffered. And then their family members, because those are the people we never think of, families of whistleblowers and, and survivors of this nonsense. You will see that's a common theme. And I'm not unreasonable. If people make mistakes, like in the case of some journalists, or if they participated in something and they've They've come to see the, the error in their way, and they prepared to do something about it. I've never, ever walked away from such people. I've always sat down with them and engaged so that you do something positive out of something negative. And that remains my philosophy. It's cost me a lot of money. It's cost me a lot of heartache. It's cost me a lot of sleepless nights and days. It's cost me financially, and it continues to. The trauma is a trauma that will remain with me for the rest of my life and other people. But as I say, you know, these things come to you. I've never elected to, to be in that position. Um, I came across those things and then the perpetrators decided to target us and bully us and threaten us and harm us. And different people deal with these stresses in different ways. So. I happen to be a coordinator of a, of a trauma support group of former and current revenue service officials and their family members. And, you know, we share intimate things with each other and we support each other because nobody else is going to do that for us. And, and so I don't want to delve too much into that trauma because every time we do so, we, we relive. But I've had instances where people attempted suicide, not once, on more than one occasion. And then we must go and help that family because the revenue service didn't. Their employer did not help. Uh, the state as a whole did not help. We as individuals went there to go and help those families. 
children who ended up in care facilities, spouses who needed urgent medical assistance, families that split up, children who don't have access to their mommy and daddy in the way that they did before all of these things. Their lives have changed permanently. You can't fix that. There's no apology on earth that's going to give a father back his wife and his kids, you know. So I can go on and on. People who've lost their homes, their possessions, cashed in their pensions to, to just survive, cut down on medical aid, ordinary things just to get through the next month. Difficult to get jobs, difficult to get back into the economy in an already depressed economy. It's an endless story, which I think people tend to forget. And when I say support group, I don't just mean the people who worked at the revenue service who are still there. I'm talking about children who were small when this happened, who are now teenagers. And you can see in their behavior and in their, the way they approach life, the marks that this has left on them. And that's why I think it's important to keep these kind of support groups alive so that people can check up on each other and help each other to, to put this behind us. And, and if these things you know, stick their heads out again to that we're there, that we shoulders to cry on each other's shoulders if we want to. So no, I mean, if I was able to, I would have gone into specifics, but it's, it's I, I want to honor the, the, the in, intimacy and the privacy of people in, in that respect. You know, ultimately there are over 500 such families that were affected at the revenue service uh, in one way or another. That's a big number. You know, it's, it's, it's terrible what happened. It's a disgrace, frankly. And sadly, it wasn't limited to SARS. It happened in other spheres of the government as well, where people blew the whistle. I'm thinking of uh, SA Airways, Cynthia Stimple, people at Transnet and Prasa and that the SABC and other SOEs. You are also involved in an informal way, I suppose, with whistleblowers from other entities? Yes, so there's a civil society body known as the Active Citizens Movement who've really done sterling work in supporting people. And these are people who have day jobs. You know, they they have their own lives to live and um, take care of. But these are people who care about our country and our future and the next generations and our children. And they formed a subcommittee or a subgroup. And this subgroup focuses on the plight of whistleblowers. And so uh, in that sense, I became involved and I worked with them. And it so happens that certainly all the whistleblowers that appeared before the State Capture Commission are members of that group. So in that sense, too, we are able to help each other. And when we need advice, when there are issues that people feel they need to raise, we, we do it there. Yeah. My understanding is that there's a huge gap between the reality of uh, whistleblowing and the protection that is afforded to whistleblowers. Legally, we need new laws because as far as I understand, whistleblowing laws only really cover corporate whistleblowing and also only in the labor sense of the law. What would you suggest as legal changes to help protect whistleblowers in future? Or is that too complicated? No, it's not complicated at all. And we don't have to think as if 
we live in a bubble and in complete isolation. We just have to look around the world where these things work and where they don't work and why they don't work. My personal view is despite what everybody says, I don't think we have much in terms of a whistleblowing system in South Africa other than really the, what is known as the Protected Disclosures Act. There's nothing else. It's not a system. It's a piece of law that came about once upon a time and it's underdeveloped, it's archaic, and it's basic, and it's got tremendous shortcomings. And it hangs in midair. Nobody owns that piece of law. It doesn't impose obligations on a part of government to take responsibility for compliance or enforcement or anything like that. And the consequence is that it pretty much leaves it up to the whistleblower to maneuver within society and within the system to the best of their abilities, um, because it's so primitive, really. My view is that when I talk about a system, one needs to understand the complete value chain and underlying processes of the act of whistleblowing and the management of the consequences of whistleblowing. So one should not start with the law. You should actually start by understanding what is whistleblowing and how does it work and how should it work. And once you've mapped that out, you then need to begin to put together the system of which but one part will be the legislative framework. I don't think we need new laws. I think what we need to do is take existing legislation that to one extent or another speaks to parts of that value chain and modernize those by way of amendment to strengthen the whistleblowing system. And here I mean the Criminal Procedure Act, labor law, and various parts of labor law, and the Protected Disclosures Act, by way of example, but not limited to that. And it needs to take into account, I think, the consequences. Once somebody has blown the whistle, what then? And it's not just about taking the information from the whistleblower and responding to that. It's also around the consequences to the whistleblower. And the whistleblower's family, things at work, things at home. And what if something goes wrong for the whistleblower? And all of this, the entire system, has to be owned somewhere within government. So that if it breaks or if it's not complied with or if a whistleblower has an issue, that whistleblower must have recourse. You must be able to go somewhere and say, government, here's a problem help me. Um, and that's not happening. I'm, I'm giving a generic answer, but that's how systems work. And, you know, in that sense, um, I think we are far behind the rest of the world. Um, and I completely disagree with even the state president who quoted different pieces of legislation. I think they are wholly inadequate. There is no system for whistleblowers. You are on your own. And the price you pay you know, it's something you have to live with because government's just not going, it's not in their interest to, to come to your aid. Please tell us in practical terms, what do whistleblowers need? I'm thinking things like a place to stay, money to survive with, but broader. In your experience with the SARS um, people and whistleblowers from other organizations, can you give a list 
and also say where can civil society and organizations assist? There are two answers to that question. The one is if, if society was normal in South Africa, in other words, if we didn't have the history that we have, which is a history that that's brought about imbalance in our society and imbalance, not just in socioeconomic terms, but in many other aspects of societal existence too. If we didn't have that and we were a normalized society that wasn't traumatized in the way that we have been and to some extent we still are. And if we didn't have the history of state capture and the brutal way in which state capture was executed, the simple answer to the question would be put the system in place so that whistleblowers have channels to report matters in a safe manner where there are no negative consequences to them when they do so. In fact, it should incentivize whistleblowing. It should be a normal thing in society. We should all be whistleblowers if we come across something that's wrong and feel okay with it to do so and feel safe to do so. So that's my one answer. But of course, we're not that society. We're a developmental state. We're a young constitutional democracy. And we're in a growth phase where there are tremendous growing pains. And these things can't be solved in one lifetime. It's going to take several lifetimes to get to that point. So that calls for something extraordinary in my view. And that means you've got to look at the experiences of whistleblowers today. And in that sense, what I would say is over and above the long-term implementation of a whistleblowing system, as I've described to you earlier, in the immediate um, now, what ought to occur is you need to, first of all, make quick fixes to the Protected Disclosures Act so that you criminalize behavior by employers or other parties who place undue, unlawful, and unnecessary pressure or threats on the lives of whistleblowers. That's the first thing that needs to happen. You've got to criminalize it, and they must be sanctioned, um, and then that must be policed. The second thing you can do is you give somebody ownership in government to own the notion of whistleblowing so that you can begin to germinate whatever flows from the system from there. At a more granular level, I think for the immediate, you need to know who all the whistleblowers are. And they're not all only the people who testified at the State Capture Commission. They are whistleblowers at municipal level. They are whistleblowers in the private sector. They are whistleblowers at provincial level and at national level. And they are permutations of so we need somehow a means to identify who those people are, A. B, we need to distinguish between fake whistleblowers, people who pretend to be whistleblowers, but they're not. Some of them are co-conspirators, um, and they're simply jumping the gun because they know that their game's up. I'm not discounting their value, but I'm simply saying Let's distinguish between somebody who comes across something accidentally and does the right thing and somebody else who acts in self-preservation mode or somebody who acts in a mode where they want to distract the real whistleblower or attack the real whistleblower and then they pretend to be whistleblowers. So we need a counter for that and we need to know who are the real whistleblowers all over the country. 
And then we need to look at those whistleblowers and see, are they okay? And here I mean with okay is, do they have food on the table? Do they have a roof over their heads? Are they okay mentally? Are their families okay? Are they safe? Can something happen to them under that roof that they're living under? Because if it can, well, let's put an alarm in that house. Those sort of really elementary things. Are they engaged in legal uh, battles? How are they funding that? Who's helping them? Do they have good legal support? So it would be physical well-being, which includes mental health, health being of the whistleblower and family members. It would be physical security. It would be legal support. And it must be checked on regularly because you might feel okay today, but in two weeks from now, there might be an incident. And then now what? You know, so in that sense, we need to almost be more aware of the consequences on whistleblowers today within the South African context. And I say this because whistleblowers in this country have been murdered. And some of them have been murdered following long periods of very sophisticated surveillance. They're not random killings. They were assassinated because of what they were capable of doing. Currently, I've seen no evidence of government doing it. And, you know, there, there is, in some quarters, I've found there is like a default where they want to use something like the Witness Protection Programme. The Witness Protection Program is designed and intended to service witness protection. What I'm talking about precedes that. And a lot of these things are quick fixes. So in my own case, I can say I suffered a particular incident which caused a scare for me. I can happily say to you that private companies reached out to me, some on Twitter, when they became aware of this and offered it free of charge to me. In, in fact, some insisted on coming to check if I'm okay, to conduct risk assessments, install alarms. I had armed guards placed at my place. I'm not gonna go into the detail on what the security measures are, but I can tell you to a large extent, this has come from the pockets of civilians, people who actually care. All they want from me, is the day the prosecuting authority requests of me to go and testify against certain people, should there be criminal prosecutions, they would like for me to be around, be present, and go and testify to the best of my ability. That's all they ask of me. So what can civil society do? Well, I know that we have a fairly advanced private security industry that is highly regulated through the, the statutory board. Security companies have to be registered and security officers have to be licensed. Those companies can quite easily pick up where government may lack capability or skills or whatever. In fact, government makes use of private security companies too. So do state-owned enterprises. We should find a way to invite reputable and accredited security companies to step into that space in conjunction with civil society and provide an immediate stopgap solution where you assess the risk of the whistleblower and you put in place what can be put in place to make sure that that person is as safe as possible and the family.
That's something that can be done easily. In my case, it was done within 48 hours. What I think government can do is they can look towards providing uh, a tax incentive, for instance, to those companies because they're spending money. Allow them that deduction at least because at the moment it's not a, it's not a deduction because it's not an income-generating thing. I can't even mention their names. I'd love to because these companies should be applauded for what they're doing, but it would also expose my security risk. But I think if you can have a panel of these companies in conjunction with civil society bodies, you can provide their services in a manner and still acknowledge their contribution publicly. And, you know, I think the nation should know that there are such companies and people within those companies who are prepared to do these things. And that's good. It's a good sign for me. But it would be great for me if other whistleblowers like me have the same, because I worry about them. You know, we speak often and I worry for them. So um, that, I think, is something that can be done in the, in the immediate. Um, and I'm just speaking off the cuff. I mean, there's, there's obviously detail underneath that, but it, that's, those are the kinds of things that we can do. And also, I mean, my neighbors are great. They're looking out for me now. There's a positive to the negative, and I think that's where civil society can look towards. Unfortunately, we cannot always depend on government. Our economy is what it is. We, we're not alone as a country, as a developing country with these challenges. Government can't always provide everything. Sometimes we need to look to each other. And, you know, where you have the means to help another, let's, let's try and do so. My last question, and I suppose it's one that you've had to answer often as well. Knowing what you know now, would you have gone this route? Would you have spoken out? Oh, yes, oh, absolutely. I just, you know, knowing what I know now, and that's the benefit of hindsight, um, is, you know, the first time I blew the whistle, I did so through my employer. And it was of a nature and so serious that I did advise my employer to take it straight to the top and go and uh, brief our president. That was my mistake, because by doing so, <laughs> I was the compiler of the, the, the original whistleblowing report. My first one was dated the year 2010, and my employer did go and brief the, the president, Mr. Zuma, um, at the time with my uh, report. And I actually accompanied the person who briefed the president. I sat outside of his office. He came out and shook my hand. And I went along in the event that the president might have um, particular detailed questions, which he didn't have. I know now that I told him something that he knew. I blew the whistle to the wrong person, frankly. Um, that's the one thing that I would have done differently is I, I would have found another channel. But other than that, yeah, I, I think I also would have, um, I would not have gone so soft. You know, I tried to uh, take into account the humanity of people and I, I, I gave benefit of the doubt. So, for instance, when Mr. Moyane was appointed at the Revenue Service in late September 2014, I was prepared to give him benefit of doubt. Knowing now what I know, and I would not have been so softly, softly, uh, I would have pushed a lot harder. But I have absolutely no regrets in what I did. 
I have to live with my own conscience. You know, ultimately, that's your own measure. People can think of me what they want. I know myself. And if I see somebody walking across the street from me, walking, reading a newspaper, and they're about to fall into a deep trench, I'm not going to look away. Mm. I'm going to run across that, that person on the shoulder and say, be careful, you're going to fall into that hole and hurt yourself. The whole notion of the very essence of humanity, which is we should look out for each other, was born on this continent that we live in, which is our home, which is Africa. And that's known as Ubuntu. That is what Ubuntu is. A whistleblower is not somebody who's informing on somebody else. You're not an informant. You, you're looking out for your society. And it's a normal thing, and it's an ordinary thing, and it's a human thing, and it's a human instinct. I hope we get to that point where it's seen like that. It's a natural thing. You see it, and then you act on it. Um, fine, there will be consequences, but then you deal with the consequences. I can assure you, I've spoken to too many whistleblowers. You've mentioned some names. I can mention Ethel Williams. None of us considered the consequences of what would happen if we blew the whistle. That only came when the consequences came. Our Responses were instinctive because we know what's right and we know what's wrong. And when you see something's wrong, you know you must do something about it. Thanks, Jan. Also on behalf of South Africans who actually want to take the country forward, thank you to, to yourself and all the other whistleblowers. And thank you also for sharing parts of your story and for giving us things to think about and to see where we can jump in and assist. And on behalf of all whistleblowers, I think it's time for ordinary people to start getting involved. Like you said, through helping with security, uh, maybe backer buddy financing to assist with food on the table and roofs over the head. But thank you for sharing your story and good luck. And we wish to see you uh, testifying one day. Thank you. I, I'm also an ordinary person. And that's what I think I, I hope is my message is that ordinary people blow whistles when they see something is wrong. Our guest today in the Outer Whistleblowers podcast was former SARS employee, writer and activist Jan van Lochrenberg. He has written four books about state capture and corruption at SARS, and those are available from bookstores around the country. This conversation was proudly brought to you by Outa, the organization on doing tax abuse. If you like our work, please consider donating to us. Donations are now tax deductible. More information at outa.co.za. Until next time, I'm Ilse Salzvedel for Outa. Thank you for listening.